So you're writing your novel and it's shit. Well, maybe not shit, but no. Who are we kidding? It's shit. If you'd paid for this and you were reading it in a printed book, you'd be saying it was dreadful. No question. Only you did this. You're looking behind you and you've tracked dog poo all over the white shag pile carpet. You pushed yourself and you motivated yourself and you finally turned up and you wrote the thing and your award is... You feel worse, much worse. You've proven beyond all doubt that you're bad at writing. You invested time and effort and now you feel less confident and more lost than ever. And the tiny berserker of motivation in your head is yelling, Finish the thing! No surrender! But you're pretty sure that if you do, you'll just track this dog poo farther and grind it in deeper. Shouldn't you stop and take stock? Take stock? What does that even mean? Isn't that exactly the kind of weasel bullshit your procrastination would say to try to stop you from working? Creating things makes you feel vulnerable. Vulnerability can lead to anxiety. Anxiety makes you tired. Part of you wants to spare you all that pain, but it knows you care about writing, so it can't just say, oh, hey, let's quit our dream of writing a novel forever. So instead it goes, oh, hey, Tim, let's take a step back. Come on, you're not feeling that great. Come on, let's be kind to ourselves. Let's make a cup of tea. Let's go for a walk. Come on, Tim, let's go to bed. Let's spend next week rereading our notes. Let's read some novels to remind ourselves how to write. Let's put the manuscript in a little drawer and get some distance from it. Maybe writing isn't for us right now with the work and the thing. And we'll come back to it when we're ready. Best not to force it, eh? Creativity comes and goes, doesn't it? It's like the muse. Artists are always talking about the fickle muse. And then another part of you goes, No! I've got to do it, but I'm doing it wrong. Maybe I'm just psyching myself out. Maybe I'm double psyching myself out. Like that time I got so stoned I thought I'd fractured my shin stepping off the bus. But then I thought maybe I was so stoned I didn't realise I'd fractured my shin because I thought... I only thought I'd fractured my shin because I was stoned. And what if I was walking around on a fractured shin right now and making it worse? But I didn't realise because I was stoned and, 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 and stop. Okay, breathe. Right, maybe you recognise some or all of this gruelling cycle in the creative process. Maybe you're at some stage of it right now. Maybe you're having a lovely time with your writing at the moment and you're convinced this sort of unpleasant reckoning is something you've safely put behind you. Or perhaps, just perhaps, it's dawning on you that this... Happened to you a while back with your last big project, this one that you quietly put aside and never returned to, and you dealt with the discomfort by simply not thinking about it. And now, as I mention it, you're starting to feel a strange and unpleasant awakening inside you. Friend, we can get you through this wherever you are. When writing, the cycle of uncertainty and clarity is inevitable. The associated suffering, less so. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer, one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, and if you're listening to my voice, I can only assume you're a writer or you're interested in the art of making stories. If not, then the next X minutes will have nothing for you. They shall be barren as the moon. But if you do dabble in fiction, or jazz lying, as I will never call it, you're in the right place. When I mentioned on Twitter I was recording an episode today and asked what you'd like me to talk about, author Lucy Ayrton wrote, I would like an episode on what to do when you look at your manuscript and just think this is 
pants. How to calm down, strategies on structural editing and line editing, and how to work out which you need, just generally how to make a plan to de-pants it which is a fantastic suggestion. Thank you very much for that, Lucy. And I need to say right from the beginning, too much to cover in one episode. Depantsing fiction is the great work, which is never complete. And the distinction between line editing and structural editing is an important one. They require different but overlapping skill sets and lots of writers, even successful best-selling ones, are good at one and not so great at the other. So today I proposed I give you my seven pillars... So today I propose I give you my seven pillars of line editing your novel like a motherfucking laser surgeon. This is the protocol that I run in my head when I'm reading back through my work editing for style. So if you're thinking of submitting something to an agent or a contest or a magazine and you're pretty sure you've got the shape of it right. Spoiler alert, you haven't. Uh, But you want to... Make it sing on the line. This is the episode for you, my friend. And if not, well, this is just how to make whatever you're working on less shit. Pillar the zeroth. Um, This is the rule that comes before others. Structural edits before line edits. You don't need to be going through your manuscript, gussying it up, making every sentence real purty-like before you've A, finished an entire draft, and B, looked at the shape of that draft to see if what you thought was a delicious chocolate croissant is actually a festering bum egg. Whole chapters, whole sections may cleave away and fall into the sea before you're ready to do the fine-tuning of a line edit. Farting around with style when you haven't established the basic shape is a great way to develop an unhealthy attachment to scenes which are a bit shit. It's like painting a wall only to knock it through a day after. And also, it is a complete waste of your precious time. The only exception is when you're initially searching for your novel's voice. It can be very useful to work up a small section to publication quality just so you can establish that it can be done. So you've got a point of reference when you're writing the rest of the book, you know, like a carpet sample. It just gives you a sense of the texture and colour of what you're going for. And that can actually improve the quality of the first draft of the rest of what you find. It can take a while to find the voice of anything. And sometimes you have to push through. Sometimes that is, you know, the magic 30,000 words you have to write before you go, oh, this is what the story's about this is what my narrator needs to sound like, whether that's a third-person narrator or an actual in-world character. um, You can't always skip past that, and sometimes you do have to forge forward. But I think at that point, or sometimes before, some of you may have written projects that kind of start to fall apart at the 10,000-word mark as well. That's quite common, where you just kind of don't know what's happening next. It can be useful to go back round and just tinker with the style at that stage. Work it up and see what it looks like when you've polished it and made it shine like it would in a finished draft but don't do that habitually you will waste time and you may end up cutting those scenes anyway and if you've worked really hard over them you'll be reluctant to do the painful but necessary work of killing them with fire so pillar the first the most important information goes at the end then the start of the sentence whenever you read a sentence you've written ask yourself What's the most important information in this sentence? What are the most relevant, interesting words? Then do your best to design the sentence so it ends and starts with one. Here's a clue. They're most likely to be nouns. You know, objects, things like truncheon, keith. Second most likely culprits are adjectives, describing words like empty, dead. This is the primacy recency effect, and I've talked about it on the podcast at least half a dozen times. Our recall is better at the beginnings and endings of things than in the middle. So whatever you put at the end of your sentence, and to a lesser extent at the beginning, is what you emphasise, whether you intended to or not. 
let me give you a couple of examples from Steve Aylett's Accomplice Quartet. Uh, any of you who've read uh, uh, my uh, memoir, uh, We Can't All Be Astronauts, will know that uh, Steve Aylett is one of my favourite authors. I think his work's amazing. So I'm being an unashamed fanboy here. But I, but there's reasons for that. And one of them is that he's really good with style. So um, here's uh, one sentence from uh, Accomplice. Woken by searchlights in a soaked field, I began to wish I had never met the mime. So we end with a punchline, right? A twist. Nothing in that sentence has telegraphed mime. You could rephrase it. I began to wish I had never met the mime as searchlights woke me in a soaked field. And the content's still there. It's still an interesting scenario, but it's not so much of a sucker punch and it's not as funny. The original emphasises woken by searchlights and mime as the beginning and end. The rewrite emphasises I began and soaked field and buries mime somewhere in the middle. Here's another example. Skittermite stood in an alleyway, staring up and down the gallery of posters stamped with his own startled face. Amazing composition here. It opens with a character's name, Skittermite. And if you're wondering what that character looks like, he looks exactly like his name suggests. And it ends with startled face. That's what the sentence accents and lifts up. So it's implicitly telling the reader, hey, this scene is about this particular guy and he's very worried. And, and listen again to the order in which that information is paid out. Skittermite stood in an alleyway, staring up and down the gallery of posters stamped with his own startled face. So we go named character, his location, what he's doing there, what he sees as a result of that action, and bam, the final reveal that these posters are of him. Now this sentence could have been constructed in an alleyway, Skittermite stood staring at his own startled face, stamped on a gallery of posters. Conveys the same information, but emphasises in an alleyway and posters. It's not awful, it still has a certain flow to it, but the most interesting parts get buried in the middle. And not awful is not the bar you're shooting for. Uh, you want to offer readers sentences that sing. Why should you go for less? Because it's hard? Because you're not good enough? Give your work the love and attention it deserves. And... All I ever ask for you from you is that you try your best. And some people hear that and they go, well, that's not enough. You've got to have talent. Bollocks. You just don't realise what a high bar your best is. One small addendum to this immutable law slash rule of thumb. Sometimes a short self-contained subclause that inverts, undermines or otherwise interestingly modifies the main clause can be considered en bloc as the ending of the sentence even if the last word itself is a bit crap or lacklustre for example dickens a christmas carol opens marley was dead to begin with with is a shit word to end a sentence on usually but here it's part of a short adverbial clause that acts as a footnote to the punchy three-word main clause marley was dead noun verb Adjective. Boom. Dickens is talking, of course, about parsimonious Victorian financier Jacob Marley and not the late great Robert Nestor Marley, who is sadly also dead. Pillar the second. Cut unnecessary grammatical words. Grammatical words isn't a real category of language, so step down peeved linguists, I know. I'm just using it as a simple catch-all for all the connective tissue and prepositional cartilage that holds a sentence in English together. It is a completely non-exhaustive list I literally just pulled out of my clean, clean arse. Of, into, when, which, that, as, for, would, could, not, did, by, to, then, so, causing, making, 
from, and, but, through. These are mainly words we use to explain sentence elements' relationships to each other. A large preponderance of them is often a sign that your sentences are too long. You've got too many clauses, you're trying to painstakingly link together, separate them into discrete sentences and let the order they come in do the heavy lifting. So instead of writing, he was a circus tumbler who had settled in England after six years of travelling around Europe in a camper van with his two aunts and twin sister, performing at fairs and festivals and, when bookings ran dry, in town centres for petrol money in the summer months and then, as autumn advanced and the weather grew less clement, driving south to teach performance workshops in schools along the Mediterranean from Valencia to Faro. Split that shit up! He was a circus tumbler who had settled in England after six years travelling round Europe in a camper van. He performed at fairs and festivals with his two aunts and twin sister. And maybe cut some of it all together. You don't always need to know exactly where a thing is in relation to something else. Here's a classic. I punched him because I was angry. Doesn't the context make the relationship between these two things obvious? Better to revise it to I punched him. I was angry. Similarly, he told me to fuck off, so I punched him. Can be revised to He told me to fuck off. I punched him. The proximity of the two sentences and the order you put them in implies causality. That's how English works. If I write the sentence, I dropped my trousers and farted. The fence collapsed and the windows across the road shattered. It implied the first action caused the second. You can get some interesting effects by juxtaposing unrelated action to suggest a causal link where none exists. Oh, by the way, that was a fictional sentence. It hasn't really happened. Don't worry. One I see all the time is she thumped the table, causing the ale flagons to rattle. Fucking appalling phrasing. Doesn't make you a bad person for using it, but it is a shit, shit sentence. Better to write it. She thumped the table. The ale flagons rattled. No reader is going to be like, shit, what made those flagons shake? And causing dot 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 to is one of the language's most inelegant formations. You've got this causing and then there's always a gap and then the two kind of snaps back into your face like a like a branch that somebody's pulled back and then let go of. At the very least change it to making. She thumped the table making the L flagons rattle so we don't have that hanging two, that awful awful hanging two. But like I say if you just put the two actions one after the other the reader understands that one causes the other they understand the relationship and and they can and and the sentence sounds so much better the main problem with linking words is that they're abstract they've got no sensory component when i say the word that what image do you get in your mind or of whereas if i say sweet red apple or Sucking a sour sliced lemon. There's data there. Would, through, because. These words offer only metadata. They give the reader additional information about how other words in the sentence relate to each other and the hierarchy between them. Too many of them and your zoo is all helpful informative signs and no fucking animals. Pillar the third. Cut those effing adverbs. Adverbs modify the verb. They say how an action was done. She ran quickly. She ran clumsily. She ran nymph-like. She ran burning. She never ran. Nevertheless, she ran. They're useful. They refine meaning. I was in love. I was hopelessly, miserably in love. And there are adverbial clauses, like the Dickens example I gave before. You can have real fun with them. Save me can become save me, if convenient. But the thing is, 
The meaning language conveys is relative rather than absolute, and I make no apologies if I briefly mutate into remedial semiotics, bro, because it's important for you to realise this, or at least for us to remember this and become conscious of this when we're editing. In your narrative, with every choice you make, actually, there's a constant negotiation going on between precision and pace. You want your story to keep moving, but you want your readers to feel invested and understand what's going on. The more you drill down into detail, the slower the narrative advances. Some people take this grossly oversimplified bipolar spectrum and place commercial fiction at the pace end and literary fiction at the precision end. In a super-duper airport thriller, the story goes blam, blam, and then she did this, and then she went there, and then she dodged this and killed him and discovered this, and boom, <sighs> she survived. On the other end of the scale, you have the plotless, litfic narrative that doesn't have any traditional story progression at all and just immerses you in people and a place and a mood and transports you into this entire other life where you just get to be. You get to hang out there in all its hallucinogenic richness. And there's some truth in those two stereotypes, but I think generally literary authors would like to write with not a word wasted. They'd like to keep the story moving and make the readers feel engaged. And commercial authors would like to get some neat turns of phrase in there and memorable, vivid descriptions that really make the reader feel the intensity of the big set pieces. They want their action scenes to pop and that requires good writing. The reason this is important with adverbs is it can be tempting to modify almost every verb you use in the name of vividness, accuracy and rich special writing. Fuck off, he said. Fuck off, he said angrily. You do it, I do it. It's not a slam against you. It, we're all guilty of it, right? We know we shouldn't and we go into this fugue state and we look back at what we've written and we find Aleph cracked his shin painfully against the table. We moved quickly through the castle, glancing nervously into each room as we passed. None of these are shooting offences on their own, but they build up. They're tapeworms sucking the nutrients out the arse of your story. And so much of the time, an adverb is a little show of fear. It's that anxiety the reader hasn't quite understood your meaning. So you slide in to just give the verb a, a little tweak. She didn't whisper. She whispered softly. There. They have to get it now, I've said it twice. Fuck that. And a brisk paddling with a studded ping-pong bat to anyone who tries to be all wry and contrary by being, well, actually, adverbs are wonderful and people who say you should limit them are ignorant vulgarians who probably learnt it on pff, a writing course. No. When they reach a certain density, adverbs are poison. Sometimes the sentence survives, but... At average concentrations of more than one per paragraph, they speak of a failure of nerve and worse, a failure of craft. Try to convey your meaning without hundreds of adverbs qualifying each action to death. Trust me, it is so liberating to go through a manuscript and just kill each adverb as you find it. And, and realise the sentence still makes sense. Your meaning is clear and the scene reads faster and it's like switching for, from some fucking grainy low-res illegal stream of your favourite show to watching it on the big screen HD TV. When intuitively, like, it ought to be the opposite, right? If you, just on the face of it, uh, you would think you've reduced the information. So how can the image be clearer? Well, that's because readers can only hold so much information in their heads at once. And if you don't pick your battles, if you're not selective, your various details are competing with one another, actively nullifying one another. The signals they send out all start interfering and breaking each other down rather than combining to form a cohesive whole. 
A well-delivered scene in fiction is like one of those optical illusions where you think you can see a whole multitude of shapes and coloured dots, but really there's just a few lines in precise motion. All of which brings me on to Pillar the Fourth. Be specific. Be, be specific. Uh, not all words are created equal. Dad is shorter than person, but conveys more information. Sword is shorter than weapon, but gives us a clearer insight. You can write that a character ate some hot, soft, white, nice, mild food, but those five modifiers tell us less than mashed potatoes. And none of the substitutions in these examples are obscure technical words that are going to lock some readers out. This is why I fart on and on and on about crunchy specificity. It's not just a choice between speed and richness in the end. There are words that do both. Compact, information-dense words that let you deliver a whole lot of story in just a few syllables. As a writer, that huge sort of value should have you popping like 50 boners. We live in a world of specifics. When you see someone walking down the pavement towards you, you don't see a generic grey humanoid. You see a cluster of individual specific traits, height, age, colour, gait, clothing, mannerisms. Are they known to you? And almost instantaneously, you backform that mass of information into this gestalt we call person. That doesn't mean you should painstakingly describe every character your protagonist encounters or provide stacks of adjectives, but you need to look at your story and see if you provided at least one telling detail. And make sure you're not always using the same trick for everyone, otherwise you end up with characterization by funny hats syndrome. So maybe like one character has a little talisman or pebble or hem of their jacket that they fiddle with while agitated or lost in thought. Another speaks in clipped half sentences and has a discoloured tooth. Another wears his hair in long chocolate curls and smells faintly of leaf smoke. One eats sunflower seeds from a paper bag and has a tattoo of a starfish across the cartilage of her inner ear. You won't always want to be hyper-specific. Sometimes you just want to say a brown shoe rather than an ox blood half-brogue. Not all narrators notice all things or know the technical names of the birds or the constellations or different makes of car. But a simple word choice needs to be there because you consciously selected it to be simple, not because you were being vague and lazy or you want to cover up your lack of research or your cloudy thinking. Pillar the fifth. One simile or metaphor per page. I've mentioned this before, and yes, of course it's arbitrary. Of course you can find exceptions. Do I still stick by it? You bet your peachy bum bum I do. It was the author Joe Dunthorne who first suggested this to me as a good rule of thumb. Like glasses of slow gin, similes feel great individually, but their cumulative effect can leave a horrifying trail of destruction. You think you're being all lyrical and virtuoso, but you're just rambling like a twat. Overusing similes and metaphors diminishes their impact. They invite us to look away from the scene and imagine something not actually in it. Oh, but my narrator is given to flights of poetic fancy, you protest. Well, then your narrator's a dick. Repeat after me. Less is more. If you've used more than one simile or metaphor per 250-word stretch, make them fight to the death. The survivor will be the strongest and most original. By running this ruthless cull through your entire manuscript, you'll drastically raise the average standard of your metaphorical language, and those that survive will have the space to resonate. Oh, and P.S. Metaphors are stronger than similes. Always look to see if you can convert a simile into a metaphor just by removing the like. Does it still make sense? Good. You've removed ambiguity and committed. Pillar the sixth. The passive voice must be removed by you. Mostly. Ah, oh dear. 
The most fashionable, well, actually, in lit bro circles of late has been arguing against the suggestion that you avoid the passive voice in your fiction. This is mainly a status thing, as a piece of writing advice becomes more and more well-known, knowing it and following it no longer carries any literary cachet. So if you want to prove your artistic credentials, you have to start arguing for the opposite while citing various examples from literature, thus implying that you have superior knowledge because you're better read. Such complaints usually end by lamenting that a rule has gained ubiquity because of creative writing degrees. Having studied and taught on several, I can tell you that creative writing pedagogy at degree level has almost zero standardisation across institutions or even within the same university. And since the workshop model is the main way information gets imparted, the bulk of feedback comes from your peers, not from any academics who are handing down this received wisdom. There's not really a delivery system for rigid ex-cathedra pronouncements. In case you don't know, and if you don't, that's fine, the active voice is Derek ate the potato. And the passive voice is the potato was eaten by Derek. With the active voice, you get the person, then the action they're taking, then, if applicable, the thing they're doing the action to or with. Subject, verb, object. With the passive voice, you get the thing acted upon or with, then the action, then, if applicable, the person who did that action. The potato was eaten by Derek. Object, verb, subject. So that's Derek ate the potato. The potato was eaten by Derek. A key difference between the two styles is that you can elide the final part in both. So with the active voice, you can elide the object. Derek ate. What did he eat? We don't know. We're intrigued. Similarly, with the passive voice, you can elide the subject. The potato was eaten. Who ate it? It's an enigma. What a dizzying epistemological lacuna we've created. So sometimes you don't know who did something, so you have to use the passive voice theoretically. So like, my wife and I will remark to each other, oh, the freezer was left open last night as a kind of pointed passag invitation for the other person to fess up to their defrosting crime. In your story, it's more likely to come in the form of ambiguity or mystery. When they got home, the front door had been smashed in. Now, now you could reframe this in the active voice. When they got home, someone had smashed in the front door. I'm kind of split between which I prefer in this instance, actually. Um, the second one reads a little smoother. And the introduction of someone as the subject highlights this threat because that someone is still out there somewhere. On the other hand, the first example ends with smashed in which is more dramatic than front door. So 95% of the time, I think you'll want to go with the active voice. It's more direct, less clunky, and it forces you to commit rather than beating around the bush. Don't beat around the bush, basically. Directly assault the bush. Fuck the bush up. It will take practice to get good at recognising the passive voice, but one quick tip is, if when you read the sentence out, it sounds like complete shit. It's probably in the passive voice. No, seriously, the trick you've probably heard is to try adding by zombies after the verb. <laughs> by zombies, how wacky. If it sort of makes sense, it's probably the passive voice. So the potato was eaten by zombies. Oh, we're laughing and learning. Isn't grammar fun? The freezer was left open last night by zombies. Passive voice. Derek ate. By zombies. Doesn't quite work. Therefore, active voice. Easy. Pillar the seventh. D-fluff. Henry David Thoreau said, simplify, simplify. Had he followed his own advice, he would have just said simplify, but nobody's perfect. Fluff words are my 
catch-all term for bits and pieces that don't really do anything and thus bog your sentences down in cruft. They're like limescale clogging up a dishwasher. A lot of them come from a lack of commitment. Almost. Nearly. Quite. Somewhat. Seemed to be. Kind of. Sort of. Approximately. They're hedging words. You're trying to be accurate, but you end up coming off as timid. William Zinzer, in his book On Writing Well, I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to order a copy, is excellent on all of this. I first read On Writing Well in a bookshop in Beijing where I picked it up randomly off the shelf and I ended up spending all morning reading furiously rather than enjoying the cultural <laughs> the cultural uh the, the cultural jamboree that was surrounding me <laughs> I locked myself in a, I, I I hold myself up in a bookshop and read a book in English I know I I, I didn't realize until I said that out loud that that is a really um that that makes me out to be a uh, a, a real backward yokel, but never mind. Uh, I I just love grammar, you guys. Anyway, like I was wowed by this unrivaled bible of good style. I think on writing well is amazing, and should be on every writer's bookshelf. Um, Zinza calls fluff clutter. Here's an example of what he has to say. Just as insidious are all the word clusters with which we explain how we propose to go about our explaining. I might add, it should be pointed out. It is interesting to note. If you might add, add it. If it should be pointed out, point it out. If it is interesting to note, make it interesting. Are we all not stupefied by what follows when someone says, this will interest you? Don't inflate what needs no inflating, with the possible exception of, should be, except due to the fact that, should be because he totally lacked the ability to. He couldn't. Until such time as? Until. For the purpose of. For. He suggests putting brackets round potential culprits. He was writing back in the 70s and I think today you could achieve the same by highlighting text in whatever word processing program you're using. Anything that looks like it might be unnecessary, surround with brackets or highlight. Then later, when you read the sentence back to yourself, leave out the highlighted words. If it makes sense without them, cut them. Words used for emphasis are often best cut. Very, really, suddenly. If it's sudden, just describe it happening. Don't freeze time while you warn us that something sudden is about to happen. Commit, commit, commit. The less fluff your sentences contain, the leaner and more powerful they become. Readers understand artistic license. They're not fussed about the distinction between an hour and nearly an hour, nor between powerful and very powerful. Boil it down. Concentrate your prose. Make every word count. Zinza reckons that most first drafts can be cut by 50% without losing any information or the author's voice. Now, that might be going a bit far in fiction, but you're certainly doing well if you find yourself wincing as you cut into live meat. No shame in overwriting. Produce, go big, write lush, let your inner artist go absolutely hog wild. But then, when you come to edit, prune back aggressively so your most impressive blooms can thrive. And that's it for this session. Woo-wee! What a passel of powerful knowledge, my friend. If you fear you might forget some of it, why not download this episode and keep it by for when you come to edit your next piece. How's your writing going, by the way? Swimmingly? 
I hope. Hello to all my new listeners who are trying out the Couch to 80K writing boot camp. I wish you all the best with that. Good luck with it. And however long it's taking you to work through it, I know not everyone's doing it, uh, you know, uh, strictly day by day. That's absolutely fine. Make it work for you. It's not there to be a uh, commitment that makes you feel bad. Don't turn it into a rod for your own back. It's 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 there to work for you. Don't let the tail wag the dog, my dear, dear friend. If you Even if you don't finish it, just having worked through some of it, all of that will be valuable work and that will have taught you something. So if you're working through it, well done. And um, I'd love to hear from you. <laughs> Let me know how you get on. So three things, three calls to action, as they say in the biz, this awful, sickening, sordid biz. Three things you can do for me if you love me. Thing one, order yourself my novel, The Honours. I'll drop a link in the show notes. There's a beautiful paperback, an ebook, and an audiobook. I'm an author just like you. Click the link and order it. And you'll get a great story. I'm genuinely, I'm not a credible advocate for my own work, but you can look at reviews online and you can see other people saying that it's good. Um, and you'll be supporting my career. And you'll be supporting my publishers as well. We take risks on authors and bring books into the world. Are often really necessary and interesting books. I'm really proud of being with Canongate. And if you order through the link, I get a little affiliate kit back too, which is just money I've put into the podcast. If you've already read it, would you mind popping a little review online somewhere, letting people know what you thought, or at least rating it on somewhere like Amazon? Little 30-second acts like that really help authors uh, a hell of a lot. And after sort of recommending this to people, I tried it out myself, and I was shocked that actually it it, it, it it took me... It literally takes 30 seconds to do these things, and it just helps authors an awful, awful lot. So if you can do that... Um, I would really appreciate it. Thing two, subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. Rate and review it on iTunes. It just takes a couple of moments to pop in a star rating and leave a review. So people who haven't listened before can get a sense of what they're letting themselves in for. Um, again, I I'm not going to go on. I can't. This isn't me just like getting you to do work that I can't be asked to do. I can't review my own work online uh, without engaging in rather pathetic fraud. If you like it, people putting up reviews uh whether it's you know in itunes itself or on their blogs or sharing it on social media makes a huge difference you just had this uh, big article go up on lifehacker last week and the listening you know we've had more listeners in the last week than in the last kind of two months to the podcast hello if you found me through lifehacker by the way but you know, you're sharing it. The only way anyone finds out about this is people sharing it on social media and friends telling other friends and also through the weird uh, recondite algorithms of iTunes. So if you rate it on there and if you write a review, you're helping other people find it. And that's the only way that we get new listeners. So I really appreciate it if you do. You'll be doing the Lord's work. The Lord being me in this metaphor. Thing three, if you'd like to support the podcast directly, click the link in the show notes or on my website, timclairpert.co.uk, to go to my coffee page. That's K-O-F-I. It's like a bit like Patreon, but it's not a subscription site. It's just a, a little site where you can drop me a one-off donation or a tip, if you prefer, of a few bucks to help me keep the lights on. I really appreciate it. If you can, don't worry. If you can't, my love for you is not contingent on your ability to pay me. And everyone who's donated something, you know, thank you very, very, very much um, because you've also been sort of helping me keep it free for people who uh, can't afford to do that. 
or just don't want to but that's fine you're allowed to not want to as well this is a media that i'm choosing to do myself uh you don't owe me anything for listening um however you know companies that host my website and podcast don't feel quite as liberal when it comes to uh, uh monetary things so any support is much appreciated and genuinely it all goes to covering my costs so i can keep making shows thanks to all of you who've been so generous and have dropped me a few quid um it's really nice of you and i really appreciate the messages you've put with it as well thanks very much and that really is it's hopefully i'm going to record some more chats with authors in the next few days so you can look forward to them i'm still waiting to hear back about my next novel uh, i'll keep you posted on that i suspect i'm more interested in that than you but it will be i'm but also if you've read the honors um i've written a sequel to it and i'm waiting to hear back whether it's going to get published so if you enjoyed the honors and you want to know what happens next um we'll wait and see um do send me the first 250 words of your novel so i can do a critique on your show um on my show in in fact uh i could do do a critique on your show if you have one that's fine no i'm just gonna do um just going to stick with fiction for now. So, yeah, if you want to send me the first 250 words of your novel, make sure it's well polished. Um, you can... Or, actually, if you've got any questions about the craft of creative writing, any feedback you'd like to offer, constructive criticism is welcome. Any topics you'd like me to cover, or if you just want to say hello, uh, there's a contact me link uh, on the right-hand column of my website. That's timclairpoet.co.uk. Click on it and drop me a line. Lots of you have been writing, and it's a pleasure to hear from you. Hmm. Well then, good luck with your writing this week. Remember, even a small amount, even five minutes is better than none at all. Uh, everything that you write is worthwhile. Bye.